I just wanted to jump on here to respond to something uh, that I originally wasn't planning on responding to. And that is, uh, if you're a Christian and you're on social media, I'm sure that you have seen um, that a former Christian has fallen away from the faith. Um, a man by the name of John Steingard, I think is that, I can't remember his name. He was the lead singer of a Christian band called Hawk Nelson that was pretty popular. And he just recently announced on his Instagram that you know, he no longer believes in God and that he's fallen away from the Christian faith. Originally, I wasn't going to respond to this because we've just seen a lot of these dramatic social media apostasy announcements as of late. And not only just from from open apostates, but even I've seen it because I also count people who they don't say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Christianity, but they've drifted into a kind of Christianity that I consider apostate. So I think it's happened even more than a lot of people think has actually happened. But there's no doubt it's been happening all over the place. And quite honestly, all of their stories are basically exactly the same which is why a lot of times I don't think it's very helpful to critique and dive into all these things. Um, but I, I did talk about Rhett and Link's apostasy because I had a lot of people pointing me to it. And this is one that surprisingly, I guess Hawk Nelson was much more popular than, than I thought because I've had a lot of people send me this and ask me about it. And so I decided to respond just because it, it obviously this one really seemed to... Um, make waves more than even some of the other ones did and has a lot of discussion so I know a lot of people have probably already talked about it so I'm not trying to be redundant but this is obviously important to people and so I'm just going to share some of my thoughts and uh, and I think these will be helpful for our wider understanding as a Christian community and discipleship uh, I'm not going to read every word of his Instagram post. You can look it up and find that for yourself. But I, I marked down about 10 quotations here that I think are really, really important. So this is these are quotations that he wrote as he gave just sort of a brief um, explanation as to why he's an apostate, why he no longer believes in God. Uh, although we know Romans chapter 1 says that we know he knows God exists. Um, but he's he's fallen away from love and adoration uh, of God and uh, from his own words and his own testimony about his deconversion, his apostasy. I want us to hear some of his own admissions, and I think they will provide some important examples. So again, not reading every word of what he posted, not trying to take things out of context. You can read them for yourself. Uh, but I think that th these were the things that stuck out to me the most. So early on in the post, he said this. <clears throat> that he was discussing why he waited till now to finally sort of come out with his newfound atheism. And uh, the reason he said is because he had to make sure that all of his ducks were in order before he could come out because he knows that when he does this, he's obviously giving up Christian music. He's giving up what was his primary source of income for a long time. And so he, he mentioned that he, he needed to be in a place where he felt like he didn't need Christian music to be able to provide for his family before he could come out. And, uh, and he, but he ended up saying this in, in that little bit of a longer discussion. He said this, that he waited in order to make sure I'm able to keep providing for my family. That had to be the case before I could be totally honest. And that fact is one of the issues I have with the church and Christian culture in general. 
and I have two brief thoughts about this. Um, number one, n number one, let me start with this. I, to some degree, I, I largely, I can't speak to everyone's circumstances, but in my own circumstances, this is not true. I, I know from my own circumstances how my church and how my previous church would treat me if I, let's say, committed a, a disqualifying sin or if I started having weaknesses and doubts. I know how they would treat me. I know how this current church would treat me. And I know lots of people who have been there and I've heard their testimonies about how their churches have treated them. And I can tell you that in my personal testimony, I have seen churches respond with nothing but grace and aid and kindness. I know of pastors who have had to been asked to step down because either they, because, you know, they've committed a sin that's disqualified them. But the church continued to pay their salary for a long time during their transition process. So, number one, I, I'll be honest, I maybe his circumstances are different, so I can't speak infallibly here. But I question his judgment of the Christian church. Um, I think Christians are, are, are far more generous than he's giving them credit for. As it pertains to dealing with people that they love who have fallen away or committed a serious sin and trying to help them. I, I can tell you right now, both my previous church and my last church, if I came to them and admitted, you know, I, I did this or I'm thinking this, sure, they would ask me to step down and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I guarantee they would have helped me quite a bit in that process. Um, quite a bit. Financially, emotionally, they would have been very supportive. And my current church would be very helpful. They wouldn't support my decision to walk away from the faith. They wouldn't support my sin if that's what disqualified me. Um, but they would be very helpful to me and my family financially. So, number one, I, I, I challenge this. I challenge his broad-brushed um, slander against the Christian community. But that said, there there is kind of an inherent logic to this that I don't know why he's criticizing, right? So, he's here's what it sounds like he's saying. Maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but here's what it sounds like he's saying. There's a problem problem in Christian culture. And what's that problem? Well, they're not going to pay you to be a Christian singer if you're not a Christian. Duh. How is that a smear? How is that an attack? I mean, how is that a legitimate criticism is what I meant to say. Right? Like, like he's, he's, he's trying to present Christians like, hey, well, then is that, in fact, that's one of the issues I have with them. They're so ungracious. I mean, the, the gall of Christians, they won't let you be a Christian pastor if you're not a Christian. What's wrong with them? You mean to tell me I can't be a Christian music artist if I'm not a Christian? Like, what? what is the logic here? Do we do this with any other area of life? The gall... I just cannot believe there there is a rotten culture in the bartending community because let me tell you even after I was petrified to admit to the rest of my bartending community that I'm actually an alcoholic because I know the second they find out I'm an alcoholic I'll lose everything they won't let me be a bartender anymore Can, let me tell you something about a cancer in the public school industry there are people out there who struggle with pedophilia and they have pedophilic desires, but they're not allowed to open up and be honest about that as teachers because the second they say that, the public schools fire them. How harsh and cruel is that? You can't even be open about your pedophilia and be a school teacher.
<laughs> right? Like, what's the logic here? If you're not a Christian, you can't be a Christian artist. If you're not a Christian, you can't be a pastor. If you're not a Christian, you can't be a Christian this and this and that. I don't understand the logic. How is this some example of bigotry and cruelty on the part of Christians? Like, yeah, of course you're going to lose your job if it's a Christian job and you're not a Christian. I, I, I don't understand the logic here. So I don't see that as necessarily being a problem. Especially since, like I said, I think Christians are actually pretty generous in situations like that. So that's just something I had, I had to get off my chest. I don't know how helpful that was, but I needed to get off my chest. Here's another thing he said. He goes on to say this. By the way, this quote I'm about to quote, it just followed. He had this section that I didn't cite. He had this section where he talked about, he tried to console his fans who are probably thinking like, so all of those Christian songs that I used to listen to you sing, like, did you lie to me? Are you a fraud? Did you even mean it? Like, I mean, they feel cheapened and embarrassed right now. And so he, he went on to say, no, I truly believe this. I was not lying. I truly believe this. It just, over the years, my beliefs started to unravel. But I, I, I really believe this, right? That's, that's what all apostates talk about is their firm belief. But then it's interesting, almost right after that, he goes on to say this. When you grow up in a community that holds a shared belief, and that shared belief is so incredibly central to everything, you simply adopt, uh, you simply adopt it. Everyone I was close to believed in God, accepted Jesus into their hearts, etc., etc., so I did too. From a Christian perspective, that doesn't sound like a true belief. That doesn't sound like a firm personal conviction. Right? So you just got done telling us, like, oh, I really believe this. I really, really believe this. And then you just turn around and say, by the way, I just kind of believed it because everyone else did. It doesn't sound like you really believed it then. <laughs> I mean, am I crazy here? That doesn't sound like you really believed it. It's like you just went along with the group. That's, uh, that's not really the firm conviction that your fans felt like you had, is it? So I think, I don't know if he's being disingenuous, but I think a lot of these apostates, they get so angry when you accuse them of never truly believing, but a lot of times their own testimony will bear that out. I just kind of did it because everyone else did it. Is that firm conviction? Does that sound like someone who was firmly convinced that the Christian faith was true and, and genuinely believed and adored and loved God? Can you imagine someone explaining the relationship they had with their wife this way? You know, they let's say someone wants to divorce from their wife and they say, you know, I, I did truly love her, but I just don't love her now, so I want to divorce her. And they say, okay, tell me about that former love. Let's see if we can rekindle that. The marriage counselor says, and he says, okay, well, let me tell you about the former love that I had for my wife that I no longer had. You know, everyone in my life thought she was great and everyone else in my life told me that she was awesome. So I just kind of went, went along with it. Everyone else in my life loved her. So I just decided to marry her. It doesn't sound like you ever really loved your wife, did it? Do you think, you're, you, you, do you think your wife would have considered that genuine love if you would have said, you know, honey, I love you. Why did why did you choose to marry me? Well, everyone else thinks you're great. Everyone else in my life loved you. It just seemed like the thing to do. He goes on to say, oh, so he expressed that he basically had this not a firm conviction in the Christian faith himself. And he had these doubts with Christian culture and Christian theology almost right from the get-go. And then he transitions right into this. 
I became interested in music, began playing and singing on worship teams. I started leading worship at church and at youth events. Even then, I remember being uncomfortable with certain things. So this is where we're going to start getting into some teaching lessons and some object lessons that are actually helpful. I think that the evangelical world needs to learn our lesson from what we're seeing in all of these apostate stories. And we need to stop promoting kids immediately. Stop promoting kids. Stop it. This is one of the dangers of the modern evangelical music industry. Here's the thing. I'm not anti-band. I don't think it's sinful to have a drum set. I don't think it's sinful to have a guitar. I don't think it's sinful to have contemporary music. I don't think that. But I do think that we have an obsession with performance. And I do think we have that obsession becomes more important than actually developing, discipling, and caring about who we are putting in front of the church and who we are giving authority and leadership and influence to. And, and here's the thing. I've made this mistake myself. I'm not just putting this on everyone. I've done this too. But but we do have to decide what's most important. Authentic discipleship, Christian theology, or having the music style that we want. You can desire to have the great performance. Desire that away. But if you don't have the tools, if you don't have the people, you don't have the people. And what we're seeing in the Christian music industry is anyone who claims to be a Christian and has some talent, we throw them in there because it makes what we want work. But look at what it ends up doing to them. Uh, did you realize one time I went to a, a conference and, and there was this really, really big church and they admitted that they will hire non-Christians to lead their worship teams. And they call it evangelism. Look at what that does. We have to stop. There has to be a way that we as a community get a grip on this. We cannot put people into any kind of influential role until they are matured and proven. He's admitted he never even really believed and he had all of these doubts and he's leading youth events and he's leading worship in church. And then here's the best part. If he did go to a church that, that like actually vetted him and met with him and worked through things with him theologically and, 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 and waited for a certain level of maturity and proven conviction before they handed over the keys to him, he, how many people would be turning around and saying, look at how legalistic they are. Look at how strict they are. It's like a cult in there. So remember, it's a lose-lose for the church. We're, we're either legalistic or we're foolish and unwise. So, so you, you just don't care what the world thinks and do what's right. And I would say that there are people who are not ready to be influencing and standing in front of others. Simply calling yourself a Christian and being good at music is actually not enough to lead a worship team and to lead youth events. And then to start touring the country, writing music and playing in a band. It's not enough. It, this is why I, I had um, a big drama in my life when I criticized Lauren Daigle. And this, this is exactly why Lauren Daigle went on a radio station and started spewing all of this horrible Christian theology, anti-Christian theology. And, and so it's obvious, I wasn't doubting her convictions, I don't know her heart, but it's obvious to me that she's not ready to be in front of people. She's not ready to be influencing young Christian girls. 
So one of the podcasts I made was, I just simply asked, where are her pastors? You see, what the Christian music industry is, is, is creating is we're creating rogue Christians. We're creating, I think I believe in God, at least everyone else does, so I chose to. And I'm really good at writing music and singing. So now I'm going to go tour. I'm not going to go to church on Sundays because I'm on the road touring. I'm going to be outside the context of the local church. I'm going to be performing. I'm going to be touring. And I'm going to be talking about Christ without the accountability and responsibility of local church. We are, we are taking immature people who are immature in their faith, both emotionally and theologically, and then telling them, get out of the church, tour, tour the world, be an influencer, be a role model, teach people the faith that you don't even have grounded yet. This man was barely a Christian, and we let him lead worship in our church, influence the youths, and then send him to around the country performing Christian music and leading people in Christ the Christianity that he's always had doubts about and never had a personal conviction of by his own testimony. So we just we have to be more discerning. As a, as a Christian community, as an evangelical community across the board, we just have to be more discerning. It's ruining lives. It's ruining lives. And that brings me to another thing that, uh, to sort of justify some of my criticisms of evangelical culture. He goes on to say this. At a youth conference I attended, they, were encur they encouraged every teen to sign a pledge that they would date Jesus for a year. He had issues with that, as he should have, because it's inappropriate and unbiblical and unhelpful. But that is a small piece. It's a little diving board that I'm going to dive off into a larger point, and that is this. This is why those of us who are criticizing the current state of the evangelical church in America as it pertains to doctrine are not stingy, cage-stage Calvinists. Okay? We're simply not. What all of these apostasy, apostasy stories have revealed... What they've all revealed is that deep theological training and education is one of the strongest factors we have to preventing apostasy. Because one of the things we're going to get into in a minute is he starts questioning all of these, he starts, he starts expressing his doubts with Christianity, and all he does is just regurgitate the most simple, basic claims against Christianity that people have always espoused. They're not new. They're not sophisticated. They're not challenging. They're not scholarly. They are, they are elementary, basic issues that Christians have been teaching and answering for their entire lives. So how has he not ever heard an answer to this? How has he never been discipled this? Because he grew up in a Christian culture that fundamentally ignores theology. We just ignore theology. We're, we're, we're too busy out there telling people about their identity in Christ and overcoming their demons and conquering their enemies and putting down the haters and dating Jesus. You don't need a boyfriend. You don't need a husband. You just need Jesus. We are so obsessed with these trite, emotional surpluses that people are walking away, even after spending many years in the church, with no theological foundation. And so the smallest little questions. You don't think Jesus Christ died roughly 2,000 years ago. You don't think that some of the questions he brought up, like 
why would God, why does God allow hell? Why does God create hell? Or why do bad things happen in the world? Why do people suffer? You don't think we've thought of that 2,000 years? You don't think there's ever been a smart person, a smart Christian who's, I don't know, maybe written something on that? You know, or how has he not been exposed to this? Because we don't do theology in church anymore as a whole, generally speaking, in evangelical Christianity. So you have to see, so this is why when I criticize preachers like Michael Todd and Stephen Furtick and Levi Lusco and Sadie Robertson, it's because what they're preaching is not helpful. It destroys people because it's fluff, it's trite, and you can think I'm just this stingy Calvinist who thinks everyone isn't as smart as I am. That's not the case at all. Rather, what I'm seeing is people are walking away from the faith in their adult years because they were not dealt with properly theologically in their child years. That's what I'm saying. And it's a problem. And we're seeing it's, it's not just a debate between church methods. We're seeing it ruin people. We're seeing it ruin people. So go to a church that's going to teach you theology and ground your theology so that these questions that are ruining some people's faith are fine. They're not a big deal for you. I, I can't remember why I took note of this. Um, for some reason I wrote down this was interesting. He said, at the age of 20, I joined Hawk Nelson and began touring with the band. It was a blast. Um, I probably have thoughts about that that I'm forgetting, but let me just say again, he was 20 years old. And he was touring, so he was outside of the church, outside the accountability, touring and teaching people about the Christian faith he didn't even really believe in at 20 years old. He was leading worship at 20 years old. I'm not saying a 20-year-old can't ever lead worship, but I mean, again, was there was there not a vetting process? I mean, was he not asked difficult questions about his faith to make sure that he was grounded and mature and ready? Again, I think it just proves the point. It's too early. It's too early. I would encourage Christian parents out there to be very leery of letting your kids idolize Christian musicians too much because usually they're unvetted, immature, and they are outside of the accountability of the local church, which is very dangerous. He admits from the get-go that our music wasn't overtly Christian. And then he goes on to talk about a shift. He says, I was one of the loudest voices pushing for us to be more outspoken about our faith and our lyrics as I believed it would lead to more success in the Christian music world. Even through this shift, there were still many things about Christian culture that made me uncomfortable. There were things that just didn't make sense. So let me break down these two quotes. First, he says, our music wasn't overtly Christian. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but this is why I personally, when I know of bands who are Christians, and they will at times write Christian lyrics, but they are trying whatever they can to not be overtly Christian, I think that's cowardly, and I think there's something behind that. If you're a Christian, and you have a platform, and you're singing music, I don't understand how you could hide that. How, how, how could you hide that? Do you think if any of the apostles became traveling musicians, that it would be hard to tell if they're Christians or not? Why would, a, why would a group of Christians singing together ever have to admit our music isn't overtly Christian? I'm not saying you have to write worship songs. I'm not saying that. 
There are songs that are written for corporate worship, and there are songs that are not written for that, and that's a good and glorious thing. There's nothing wrong. I'm not saying you have to write worship music. I'm not saying that. But I just don't know how you don't avoid overtly Christian lyrics if you're a Christian. I mean, I could see it every once in a while, right? Like if a Christian man writes a love song about his wife, you know, maybe that's going to be very lovey-dovey and not be drenched in a lot of Christian language and Christian theology. I still, but even then, I wrote a love song for my wife on our wedding and my faith came out. And that's not to toot my own horn. That's just to say, when you're Christian, I just don't know how it doesn't. And, and this is a trend we're seeing Christian musicians, right? Oh, I'm not a Christian musician. I'm just a musician who happens to be a Christian. And, you know, I don't really, I, I like to write music that appeal to Christians and non-Christians. There's this push to hide their Christianity. I'm telling you, it's a problem. Just saying. Very rarely does that work out. But then he goes on to admit that we eventually tried to be more overt about our Christianity. And he said that I was the one who sort of led that charge. But what's interesting, he said, even while he was leading the charge, there were still many things about Christian culture that made me uncomfortable and there were things that just didn't make sense. So in other words, we have a non-Christian who's pretending to be a Christian, who's leading the charge in their band being more Christian. Well, why would he do that? Well, because of what he says. I was one of the voices pushing for this as I believed it would lead to more success in the Christian music world. I think that was a really helpful admission because it's... It's at least one example that vindicates what a lot of us think about some of these famous Christian musicians. And that is that they will use Christianity as a stepping stone to more fame. They know that it, they can't cut it out in the secular music world, at least not right from the get-go. So they will go into the easier market, which is the Christian market, which we could probably spend a whole nother video talking about why it's easier. But I won't do that now. I don't think I'm prepared to now. Uh, but they will sort of get their foot in the door by standing on the backs of Christians. And then once they've sort of made it there and have garnered some popularity, they will start to try to drift into becoming more secularly, uh, you know, popular. And I'm not saying I know the hearts of every single person, but that's always been my suspicion. And here we have confirmation that at least one person knew it, right? He wanted to be more Christian for the success. This is good for the band. This is good for the bottom line. He even admitted while I was making that push, I didn't even really believe Christian. There were some things that just didn't make sense. The Christian faith was not a true coherent worldview to me, but it's going to make us money. <laughs> That's what he said. Yeah, so. And then it was at this point in the post that he went into outlining some of his objections to Christianity, some of the things that led him away. And I'm not going to go through those and answer them. I'd be happy to. They're basic. They're easy. If there's anybody watching this who thinks I'm running away or afraid, just comment. I'll make another video answering his objections. I'd love to. That's I love apologetics. It's what gets me going. I, I would do that. But I, I want to make a different point here. And I just want to reiterate how all of his objections are baseline objections. It's like apologetics, Christian apologetics 101. And it just astonishes me that he had never had these answers before. And it astonishes me that he was so judgmental of the Christians in his life that he thought by even asking them that he would be shunned. As a Christian pastor, I can tell you, I get so excited when young people ask me questions. It's like the best thing in the world. 
why does he why was he so judgmental that he just thought man if i tell people i'm struggling with this i'm done i mean maybe he didn't say that because he was primarily talking about when he was already established in the christian music world but i get the sense that he had these doubts and confusions from a very early stage but it took him as he's going to go on later to say many many years before he apparently finally started to ask people about it so again we need to ground our children theologically not emotionally theologically and we need to create spaces that they feel comfortable bringing their doubts and their questions to us that's really important because this is basic stuff now to some degree i i can't help but think i mean did you never google it right did you never look it up yourself so sometimes i think it's important to also remember in apologetics that the answers that people give as to here's why I'm not a Christian are actually usually a veil to the spiritual and emotional, I just don't want to be. And so here's what I can scrounge up to to make it look like there's a, a logical reason. Um, let me just give you one, one example to kind of help explain my train of thought here. At the same conference that I, I just mentioned earlier, I went to, there was a, another breakout session on how to reach millennials. And um, the guy who was leading it had presented some, some data to us that led to a book that he wrote about reaching millennials. And so he did a scientific survey, uh, just sort of polling why millennials don't go to church and what their problems with the Christian faith are. And they weren't just giving one answer. They would give multiple answers. And the top two objections, so according to this scientific research that led to this book, the top two reasons that the top two issues millennials had with Christianity was the first one was that Christianity lacks solid answers to life's most important questions, right? Christianity is incompatible with science. It's incompatible with what we know about science and in history. And it, it, you know, it, it, it can't answer our questions. We've got logical philosophical questions it can't answer we've got scientific questions it can't answer christianity can't answer our questions that was the most popular answer and then the same group of people also gave the second most popular answer which was christianity offers basically trite fluffy answers to life's most difficult questions and they act like know-it-alls and then he wrote a book on all this data but I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so let's get, let me get this straight. The number one reason that you don't want to be a Christian is because they don't have enough answers. And the number two reason you don't want to be a Christian is because they have way too many answers. It sounds like there's maybe something else going on here because they can't both be legitimate reasons, right? <laughs> In other words, I think that these people just don't want to be Christians. They don't want to repent. They don't want to live the lifestyle Christianity requires. And so they'll just throw at you, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? But they've never done serious study. What book? Tell me. I want to know. Pick every one of the objections he brought up. The issue of hell, the issue of, of natural, what we call natural suffering, right? So tornadoes and earthquakes killing people. He brought that up. Uh, the issue of free will and the issue of what else did he bring up? Um, I can't remember. But let's just take those. Hell, free will. Oh, we talked about the God of the of the Old Testament is really mean and nasty, but the God of the New Testament is really nice. Let's take just those four. Hell, natural suffering, 
the God of the Old Testament and its compatibility with the God of the New Testament. Let's just take those three because I forgot the fourth one. I want to know. I would love for him to come out and say, here are the books I read that tried to answer my problem. Here are the apologists I've studied. Here are the theologians I've read. I mean, did he dive into these questions? Did, did he seek answers? And did he consult meaningful, conservative, scholarly opinions on these things? Or is it more likely that he just doesn't want to be a Christian, doesn't believe it's true, so he's just throwing the standard objections that everyone can Google and throw? That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, we don't have any evidence that he really dove deep into these issues. The only evidence we do have, it turns me to my next point, is he, I can't remember if it was a grandfather or an uncle, or but an, an older man who loved the Lord, he turned to. He turned to one person in his life who was a liberal and gave him a bad answer to one of his questions. It doesn't sound like he really tried to get these answered. Because I know the resources are available. I know they're available. Some of them, many of them, readily available. But, for example, that the answer he gives, he brought to this close confidant in his life, I'm, I apologize, I, I don't remember, um, I, I already closed the, the Instagram page, so I, I don't remember exactly who it is, but someone who was meaningful and someone he trusted, someone he loved, someone who loved the Lord. And the, the objection he brought to this particular person was Paul telling women that they're not allowed to be pastors in First Timothy. And his objection is that, you know, that sounds... Uh, that sounds degrading to women. That sounds like Paul's not inspired by God, but he's just a product of his time, and he treated women like property, and we need to stop that now. So how did the guy answer? Well, the guy said, you must be reading the King James, and there's problems with the King James. Don't read the King James. The King James snuck that in there. What a bad answer. What an untrue answer. Number one, the King James reads and teaches the exact same theology on that issue that all the other Bibles do. So then he goes off in this diatribe about how, oh, the modern translations are all different, and they're all untrustworthy and reliable. Therefore, the originals must also be unreliable, which is, number one, uh, number one, it's not true, because it hasn't been proved to him that the Bibles are all reliable. What does that say about him? I have one person in my life who thinks the King James teaches something different than the rest of the modern translations. Therefore, they're all unreliable. He's done no research. He's, done, he's not tried in a meaningful way to seek answers. There's plenty of material available talking about modern Bible translations. Their accuracy, their philosophies, their reliability, the different schools of thought, the different manuscript traditions. He can find answers to these. But he heard one bad answer and said, see, Christianity can't answer my questions. Uh, number two, it doesn't, let's even just go with it for a second, that the, all of the modern translations are just the products of men, and so they're fallible and they're problematic. And, and most, some of that is actually true. So then he says, so that tells me that the next part, that, that the, the originals that they're copying from must also be problematic. What's the logic in that? How is that the case? That a translation is faulty, therefore the original it's translating from is faulty? That is illogical. But that's what he makes. Again, he's not really tried. And if he has, let me put it this way, because you say, oh, you don't know his heart, you don't know his history, you can't summarize his entire, you know, 40, 30 years of life, however old he is in this. Okay, that's fine, but let me just 
let me rephrase it. He's given us no evidence and he's even given us contrary evidence that he's tried. Let me say it that way. We have no reason to believe that he sincerely sought meaningful answers to these problems. He had them, he kept them bottled up, and now that he doesn't want to be a Christian, he's using them. That's what happened. Let me just conclude with this last one. He said that stepping away from God in a sense feels like a loss in some ways, but in other ways it feels like freedom. That's a common line I've heard in a lot of these apostasy stories. I'm going to steal an analogy from a pastor who gave a lecture similar to this topic. And he talked about, he made just the quick kind of quirk, the quick joke that uh, sometimes free falling feels a lot like flying. Sometimes free falling feels a lot like flying until you hit the bottom. It feels a lot like flying until you hit the bottom. We have a lot of apostates who appeal to emotion they walk away from the Christian faith and talk about this newfound freedom that they have. You know, they're finally free. The chains are gone. The shackles are gone. But sometimes boundaries, sometimes this confinement is a good thing. You might feel confined to the ground when you're walking. And when you step off the cliff, you can feel these powerful emotions. about. See, now the ground's not at my feet forcing me to stay up. Now I'm free. There's no ground beneath me. I'm just flying. Uh, feelings of freedom, of course, are going to come with an apostate uh, deconversion story. I, we, let's, let's even stop calling it deconversion because he has a worldview. This is a conversion story. It's, he didn't deconvert. He converted. He's just now a proselyte to another religion. This is a conversion story. He's an evangelist sharing his testimony of his conversion story. That's what this is. But back to the point, when you hate God and you hate God's law, it's naturally going to feel like a confinement. John says the law of God is not a burden to me because he loves the law of God. But if you hate the law of God, then yeah, it's going to be a burden. It's going to be confining. And so when you finally release from it. Like he mentions, my wife and I hated going to church. We hated praying. We hated the Christian culture. So now that we're not in it, we feel freedom. Well, of course you do. Anytime you leave something that you don't want to be in, it feels free, right? Football players, even if they love football, will oftentimes feel freedom when they finally retire because it's just like, oh, I don't have to do two days anymore. I don't have to practice. Thank the Lord, this is free. I feel free. So of course there's this natural feeling of freedom, but we have to understand what is freedom that they're feeling biblically and it's tragic. Because that freedom is merely them being given over. That freedom is them merely saying, I get to indulge now, guilt-free in all of the sins that I have been clinging to. Their understanding of freedom is the Bible's understanding of slavery to sin. They have not found freedom, they have found slavery. But slavery to sin has an immediate feeling of freedom. It doesn't feel like slavery, at least at first. It feels like freedom in the same way that free-falling can feel like flying. But they are not experiencing freedom right now. There's no freedom. 
They are experiencing the joy of indulging in sins, which does come with it um, a temporary and immediate satisfaction and joy. But this is slavery. They have moved into bondage. And we need to pray for them. And we need to pray for them. And hopefully all of these different apostate conversion stories will get all of us as Christians and as church members and as leaders in the church to rethink discipleship and to rethink evangelical community and address things that need to be addressed. So I guess maybe you could say the purpose of this is semper reformanda, right? Always reforming. Let's go back to the scriptures. Let's go back to a biblical model of church, biblical models of discipleship. And maybe by God's grace, we can avoid more of these stories in the future. But thanks for sticking with me through all this. I hope it was helpful. Hope it was edifying. Hope it was encouraging. Um, But as always, maintain the gospel, maintain the fight. God bless.